0: invite you turn your Bible to Romans chapter 4. Dr. Rogers preached through Romans about 10 years ago and more recently covered some passages from Romans 3. And this morning we're picking up in Romans 4 where Paul has already made the argument that no one is righteous, uh, not Jew nor Gentile, but all are condemned under the burden of sin and that our justification, our salvation. This does not come through works, through good works or the keeping of the law, but rather through faith in Christ. And so our text here goes on to illustrate and strengthen Paul's argument from the life of Abraham through whom God promised to bless all nations. We live in a pluralistic society, a very multicultural society, and uh, with many religions and many religious backgrounds But ultimately, in in the final assessment of the matter, there really are only two ways of salvation. One by which our own merits, we may curry favor with God, or trusting God to provide what we need for salvation. The religion of man is based on karma, of building up an assessment of good works. But the religion of God Offers salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ. Please follow as I read, beginning in Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then skipping down to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inheritance of the law who are the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for the clarity and the focus of your word that sets us free from the bondage of man-made religion and points us to the very religion of God, of salvation by grace, through faith alone in Christ. I pray that you would impress these matters upon our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the second day of our London mission trip last month, uh, we visited a very large and beautiful Sikh Gurdwara, which is like a temple in the town of South Hall, just west of downtown London. And uh, while there, we learned that this Sikh Gurdwara was the second largest, or the largest outside of India. Sikhism is a reform movement uh, in Hinduism that dates back some 600 years and uh, claims about 25 million uh, followers, adherents around the world today. You can usually spot out uh, a Sikh man, uh, a pious man who... uh, pledges to never cut his hair and wears his hair up in a turban and his beard long and usually wears a bracelet around the wrist. And uh, we were greeted with hospitality and served chai tea, and we listened to women sing beautiful music to their holy book, and then wanted to listen to uh, a very articulate elder explain to us the history and the teachings of the Sikh faith. And uh, Sikhs believe very strongly in family, in marriage, in loyalty to one's community and to the nation. In fact, they have a long history uh, with the British Empire, especially in South Asia. Uh, They're very hardworking people and share many of what we would call traditional and conservative values. And because of their strong work ethic and frugality, many Sikhs do rise to prominence and are people of means. Uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley comes from a Sikh background. And as I'm listening to this very winsome elder describe the Sikh faith, I, I grew in admiration for it. So wow, these people are pro-family and pro-marriage, pro-life, pro-work at hard work. Uh, they're very generous, serving the poor in their communities. They, they open their doors and serve meals uh, most of the day, all day long. And it all sounded so good until this elder got to karma. Karma is as a principle of divine justice, uh, where each person gets uh, his or her just desserts. It, it rests on the teaching of reincarnation, that the belief that all of us uh, have been preceded by or, or have lived uh, nearly infinite numbers of past lives, and they use karma to explain prosperity and suffering. Uh, that you are where you are today because of your goodness in past lives and the way you live your life now will predict and prepare you for the next life. As I thought about this teaching, this idea, this endless cycle of re-entering a fallen and broken world and that my future status would be conditioned upon my performance in this life, I realized this offers no hope at all. I joked to my team that if reincarnation and karma were true, I'd come back as a mosquito. Probably one that carried the Zika virus, of all things. That would be more than I deserve. A karma basis for judging ourselves and others that was not limited to Hindus and Sikhs, but is very prevalent in our culture today one in which is very merit-based in its view of prosperity and suffering. All too often, we are very much like the disciples of Jesus, who on the occasion of encountering a blind man asked Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? We take grace for granted. We look down and judge uh, those who suffer. We Consider that there are some who are beyond the reach of God's grace with our karma-laced conviction that people need to get what they deserve. Well, Jesus' response to his disciples that neither sinned, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life illustrates the point Paul makes concerning the offer of the gospel of God's grace, the freedom from the death cycle of karma, and the hope of everlasting life. This morning, we want to lay out Paul's argument from Romans 4. And then we want to make some comparisons between karma and grace, and then offer some practical applications. So Paul opens by arguing against the karma thinking prevalent in our world, this this man-centered view of salvation, offering in its place that salvation comes by grace through faith and not by good deeds, good works, or keeping the letter of the law. Now Abraham was upheld in Jewish tradition as a, a model figure of obedience and faithfulness. And if ever there was a man to be saved by his good karma, it must be Abraham. But a candid look at scriptures reveals a more complicated story, that that Abraham was a very flawed man, but in the end was characterized by very great faith and a great God. Paul asks rhetorically what Abraham might have gained if his justification came by works. Well, then he would have something to boast about. But what does Scripture say in Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This verb counted means to credit, as in to credit to one's bank account, to build up credit and resources. So it is that Abraham did not build up his account or his credit or add good karma to his account to God, but rather he believed God at his word. Paul adds this contrast, this illustration of verses 4 and 5, contrasting a wage versus a gift. That The person who works rightly expects payment. Uh, it is earned by his labor, but a gift is freely given. A gift is not earned, rather it's received with gratitude. All of our children have savings accounts down at the Belco Credit Union down the road here, and uh, we, we picked that uh, credit union years ago because it offers a little better interest rate than the bank and also offers savings incentives. On their birthday, they get a $5 bonus added to their account. And uh, when they bring in the report cards, they get $1 for every A up to a $5 bonus. And, and so in a sense, they, they earn their money by work their school work, earning the A's. Uh, but the birthday money is free. Uh, it is just a, a bonus of sorts. Well, Paul is saying something similar here with regard to our salvation in verse 5. It's not for the one who works, but the one who believes God, who justifies the ungodly. Now, there's a, a disturbing verse here. How is, how is the God who is just, how can he justify the ungodly or the wicked? Well, Scripture teaches us that mercy is not getting what we deserve, And grace is getting what we don't deserve. By God's mercy, we are spared the punishment that is owed to us because Christ took our place. He was punished on our behalf. But not only are we spared eternal punishment, we're also given access, granted access into heaven, into fellowship with God. That's grace through the merit and the obedience of Jesus Christ. In verses 9 and following, Paul will go on to explain uh, that Abraham was not counted righteous because of his circumcision, which came later. He was already righteous uh, through his faith, but rather circumcision was an outward sign of the inward reality of him believing upon God, his creator and redeemer. And so as we pick up again in verse 13, onward to the end, Paul shifts to focus on how our salvation, our justification is not come by the keeping of the law. Abraham was justified before God, centuries before God gave the law to Israel through Moses. And then in verse 14, Paul throws down the gauntlet to declare that, that salvation cannot be both by law and by faith. It has to be one or the other because the law commands obedience, but the promise commands faith. God did not say to Abraham, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. Verse 15 goes on to explain that the law brings wrath because we are all counted guilty as lawbreakers. James says the same thing when he says that anyone who breaks even one part of the law is guilty of breaking all of it. But grace gives. While faith takes. Faith must humbly receive what grace has to offer. In verse, verses 17 to the end, go on to exemplify not Abraham's good character and morals, rather his faith. His faith in this God who is now offering inclusion, admission, and acceptance into his redemption, into his family, not because of pedigree or good works, or keeping the law, but rather through faith. And our text makes clear that that Abraham believed both in God's power, that he was powerful enough to fulfill his promise, but also trusted in God's reliability, his willingness and faithfulness to fall through on the promise. Verse 18 declares that, that Abraham hoped against hope. He and his wife were childless. They were decades beyond uh, the normal age of bearing children, and yet God had promised that he would be the father of many nations. Later on, when Abraham has a son, his well loved Isaac, God commands him to take Isaac to Moriah to sacrifice him there. And Hebrews chapter 11 helps us interpret understanding that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Ours is not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith because we have trust in him who is trustworthy. Our faith is a reasoned trust. Verse 21 declares that Abraham was convinced that God was able to do what he promised. People break promises all the time. Politicians over-promise and underdeliver, but not God. He has both the ability and the reliability to keep his promises. And so Abraham trusted in God's track record. The example of Abraham in in our final verses teaches us that God knowing credited him with righteousness, but you and I, when we are found to possess genuine faith, believing God at his word, such faith, says, God, I don't know how you could forgive me of all my sins, but I trust that you will not hold my sins against me, and that you will credit to me the very righteousness of Christ by him taking my place on the cross. Such faith also says, God, I don't know how my family will get through this crisis financially, health, relationally, but I trust that your grace is sufficient for us to endure through it. We have a reasonable faith and a reasonable hope that despite life's difficulties, despite suffering the prospects of death, we believe that God has something better for his people. He who made all things by the word of his power, who brought back from death our Lord Jesus Christ. In time, space, and history is trustworthy for every it has every reason for us to hope in this life and in the life to come, I think it 's valuable as you consider biblical doctrine and teaching to take time to see the differences between what we profess to believe and what other faith traditions believe and While in London, what what struck me was, was the vivid contrast of a salvation clearly dogmatically by works in these other religions, and salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We witness this firsthand, which is so valuable to be on a short-term mission trip and just see vividly how other people uh, respond in the world, uh, worldly religions. But let us consider some of the differences between karma and grace. I believe it's first a difference between anxiety and assurance. I've already covered some of, the, some of the reasons we have to believe. We have reasonable faith based upon what God has done in history, based upon his revelation of Scripture, based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hindus, though, have no confidence that they will get what they deserve or somehow improve their lot in the next life. Their, their Scripture is not based upon divine revelation like uh, the biblical authors claim the word of God is for us. Muslims speak of hope, of eternity, but have no assurance that their works will please Allah, that they'll somehow gain his mercy and enter into paradise. In fact, upon closer scrutiny, it's clear that Islam really offers two paths to salvation. The first is by way of piety, by following the five pillars of Islam. The second is through martyrdom, to lose one's life in the battle for jihad. And sadly, wicked men exploit this teaching today, recruiting very flawed men who have no hope of salvation by their piety, but assuring them of salvation by giving their lives to die while committing acts of terror. Karma has destructive consequences. The lack of assurance in the doctrine of karma leaves people in grave doubt, in fearful, grave anxiety. Contrast grace, which offers us assurance, acceptance, certainty of inclusion in the family of God. And so Paul, with great confidence, can exhort us to not be anxious about anything. As we entrust ourselves into the hands of a sovereign And good, heavenly Father, and await the fulfillment of His promise. Karma versus grace is also the difference between falsehood and truth. Karma denies the sinful nature of humanity. It also ultimately denies the holiness of God. And this this idea of working one's way into heaven is is grotesquely presumptuous and arrogant. One night, while we were in London, as we were going door-to-door, we, my partner and I were invited into the home of a Muslim family and a very earnest young Muslim husband and father of two small children. Talked my ear off for 25 minutes about Islam and Christianity and, and the judgment to come, and uh, the Muslims really believe in Jesus as a prophet and believe that he will return to judge uh, the just and the wicked— and after I listened to him speak, I, I began to talk to him about some of, of the flaws, the falsehoods of Islam that both reject the deity of Christ and his sacrificial death and begin to point out why do we need sacrifice, well, what was the whole purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and to help him see that he needs a Savior. And so we had a really good discussion just planting a seed of the gospel. But as I thought about it, you know, he's not alone. Many Hindus and Muslims and many American people believe this same idea that is karma-based. Uh, a fellow residential assistant that I worked with in college had this view that you know, she couldn't see herself becoming a Christian because she couldn't be good enough, couldn't do the things that Christians do. And I explained to her, no, you have to trust yourself and trust your sin with Christ to find grace and forgiveness. And only by the Spirit can you have a transformed life. It's by grace that we stand before the judgment seat of God, having been pardoned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Karma versus grace is also the difference between fear and love. Karma brings only the fear of judgment, just hoping that somehow my good karma will outweigh my bad karma. It's a slave versus child mentality. The day after we met with this Muslim family, I Met several earnest young Muslim men on the streets of South Hall as I was working a book table, and uh, they very adamantly insisted to me that, that Allah loves His slaves more than seventy mothers. And this is the same phrase we heard from the Imam that we met at the mosque earlier in the week. That's as close as Islam gets to expressing that Allah is love a far cry from the God of the Bible who demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. And we are more than friends. We are sons and daughters adopted by our Heavenly Father, karma, is the way of slavish fear. Grace is the way of love, the well-loved children of God. And lastly, karma and grace are as different as despair and hope. Karma is the regret of things done and the things undone. My heart went out earlier this summer to the father who lost his little boy, killed by an alligator at a Disney resort in Florida, I thought about myself. If I were in this position, I would be greatly tempted to regret. I just wondered what could I have done to prevent this and mourning and seeking consolation. And if such a tragedy were to afflict my family, I know the only consolation I would have is in the mercy and goodness of my heavenly Father, who empathizes with us in our pain. Who has entered into our suffering in the person of Jesus Christ, who died, who was lost, only to be raised up once again. Grace washes over our mistakes. It covers our sins. Karma leaves only bitterness to the troubled marriage that is in a stalemate with no offering no basis for confession, repentance, or forgiveness. Karma leads parents and their children to be alienated full with ultimatums, demands, and impossible expectations. But grace allows us to forgive, just as we have been forgiven. Grace enables us to reconcile broken relationships, to acknowledge sin, to repent, to forgive, and to accept one another as fellow sinners, broken but healed at the foot of the cross. Karma results in the endless cycle of reincarnation, returning once again to this brutal world with no escape from sin and misery. Grace promises resurrection, restoration through the reconciliation that has been bought through the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, many of the Hindu, Sikhs, and Muslims we met in London are truly wonderful people. Many of your fellow Americans who do not profess faith in Christ also can be very wonderful people. To greater or to lesser extent, though they all fall under the doctrine of karma, failing to see the grace and the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But sadly, sometimes believers live in the same way, live as if we're under karma, grossly neglecting the rich privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. So what are some of those privileges? Well, the first is greater joy and peace. The late Jack Miller was famous for for saying, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Cheer up, rejoice, God loves you far more than you ever dare dream or imagine. We know a joy and a peace that the world does not know. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He also says, peace, I give to you. My peace, I leave with you. You know, there are many people we met in London who said they wanted peace, especially on a week in which a terrorist drove a truck into a crowd of people in Nice, France, leaving hundreds dead and injured. If you are lacking joy or peace, perhaps it's because you are living under karma, rather than grace. A second privilege that is ours in Christ is a genuine relationship with the Father. One sign of whether one is living under karma or grace is how you think of the notion that God is your Father. J.I. Packer, the theologian, says that this is a prime indicator of one's grasp of biblical Christianity. My wife and I support a missionary family in Jordan ministering to Syrian refugees, and many are Muslim, and he wrote us recently asking for a prayer for one Muslim man who's seeking, who's reading the Gospels, but can't get past the notion that he's nothing more than a slave of God. I'm convinced that this false teaching is what f- fuels much of the terror and the hostility in our world. Peace in the Middle East and elsewhere will not come by better negotiations, stronger sanctions, higher walls, or more troops on the ground, but only through the good news of Jesus Christ. And our responsibility is to show the world the rich privileges we have through a genuine relationship with our Father in heaven. Well, thirdly, one of our privileges is deeper compassion, better motivation towards those in need. You know, the Sikhs were very exemplary for the way they served the poor, the community, Uh, The the missionaries told us that Sikhs make really great neighbors uh, with the way they serve and help. But their service is aimed at building up karma, not necessarily rooted in compassion. Sadly, we believers sometimes do the same thing. Where we serve in order to get praise or for the admiration of others or to somehow curry favor with God. But Jesus offers a better way. Some 30 times in the Gospels, it declares that that Jesus would see somebody in need, be moved with compassion towards that person and begin to meet that need. Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Compassion compels us to relieve temporal suffering. It also compels us to strive to relieve eternal suffering. Hindus and Sikhs really are not burdened by conversion or evangelism. They really don't have a doctrine of of judgment and punishment. And uh, so they're really not zealous in evangelism efforts or making converts. Muslims, however, are quite zealous... And in fact, the young Muslim men we met in London were as, as zealous to convert us as we were them. And they, in fact, they, they expressed their admiration, the fact that we would come from America to share Christ with them. And uh, were trying to convert us to get us on, on, onto their team. And I thought about, wow, that these men so motivated, so zealous to convert others while serving the wrong God. You and I have the motivation of grace, of serving the mighty and true God of history and scripture by the power of the Spirit. And he calls us to share his burden, to embrace his compassion, to seek and to find and draw all of his lost children back into fellowship with himself. I have an open invitation to to lead a team back to London at some point. Uh, to serve with a missionary who focuses on Pakistani Muslims in the city of Reading, west of of London. And I'm praying about that and would invite anybody who is interested to talk with me about your interest to do Muslim evangelism. On one of those times when I was serving at the book table in South Hall near London, I was approached by a a well-dressed man of South Asian background, and I I call him Mr. Faith. Uh, because here was a man who who claimed to have studied all the major world religions, including Christianity, but he had not committed himself to any of them. And and essentially, he believed what's common in the West, that all religions are equally true as well as equally false. And as he spoke further, it became very clear to me that what he really was committed to was the religion of self, of self-improvement, of self-fulfillment the college that I attended uh, for my undergraduate degree has a chapel called All-Faith Chapel, not wanting to discriminate or exclude anybody from any faith tradition, Christian or otherwise. The error of Mr. All-Faith and of the naming of All-Faith Chapel is its failure to make careful distinctions. All religions are not the same. There are only two ways, two ways of salvation, the one by works and the other by grace. The path of karma leads to disillusionment, despair, death. But the path of grace leads to joy, peace, and the hope of eternal life. Receive God's grace and live now and forevermore. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are so grateful that you did not wait for us, for we would never have turned from you, but you came seeking us to deliver us from our bondage, to redeem us uh, through the work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the biblical truth uh, of grace, of salvation by faith alone in Christ. May you impress these things upon our hearts. Help us to live as a people who abide with you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.